Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, it says, And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Great wife. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in God's stead who has withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? I can imagine fiery eyes. I can imagine spit coming out as the speech is going forth in this interaction between these two uh, heated personalities in a moment of frustration uh, between them. In our last study, we're watching now the development of Jacob's family. We're watching God build and set the stage for what will become his future. And we have seen that just in the past uh, um, months of Jacob's life and into years, he has become an exponentially complicated individual in what surrounds him. Um, He agreed with uh, Laban to work seven years for his younger daughter, Rachel, Uh, Laban pulled a fast one on Jacob and snuck the older daughter into the tent at the last minute in the dark. And Jacob found himself uh, in seven days with two wives, not just one. And then in a, a matter of a couple of years, he has four children with Leah. That is the one that he wasn't too crazy about and didn't really want. And Rachel, we're told that she is barren. God has closed her womb. And so there's an extremely complicated situation that Jacob finds himself in now in this thing because he's got two wives and Leah, the older, desperately wants the affection of her husband and she does not have it, although she's having babies, And then you have Rachel, who does have the affection of Jacob, but she doesn't have babies. And so we have these two sisters, and they're beginning to conflict with one another over the affection and attention of Jacob, and neither one of them is happy with what they've got, and they each want what the other one has. And so there's an extremely dramatic and soap operatic scene that is now developed in Jacob's household, and it intensifies to the point where now with Rachel, there's a boiling over as she realizes that she can't have children and looking at Jacob as somehow that he can fix this problem that she has. She looks at him and she says, give me children or else I die. And Jacob, of course, looks right back at her and says, I ain't God. You know, we're doing everything we can do to produce kids, and it's not up to me to make this thing happen uh, in your heart. And so Rachel gives a very unrealistic demand upon Jacob, and Jacob replies equally frustrated to her. Now, what I find interesting about this introduction as we just come into this portion of Jacob's life is that you have these two women, and neither one of them uh, is happy with what they have and that each one wants what the other one has. It's a very interesting thing. We have Leah, desperate for Jacob, crushed because she doesn't have it. Rachel, longing for children, crushed because she doesn't have them, and both of them are kind of at their wit's end in the whole thing. And I find it an amazing irony, and it speaks to the human condition. This is something that you and I go through. It's something that we battle and we face on a daily basis, and that is this problem of discontentment, this problem of not seeing what we do have 
and the inability to take our eyes off of that thing that we don't have. And it's an amazing thing to realize that if either one of these two women were wise, they would recognize that the other one that has what they want isn't happy having the thing that they want. And so we have these two ladies, and nothing, you know, it would, you know, it would be, if it was men, it would be men, that are blind to what they have and wanting something that they don't. And there's a couple of truths that are worthy of our consideration lest we fall into the same pattern. Number one is to recognize that no one has everything. No one has everything. Every single one of us that are here in this room tonight have been given something from God whether it be uh, favor in a particular area of our lives or whether it be a gifting or a calling or whether it be uh, an open door or an opportunity or, or a circumstance, a situation of life that is just to us a, 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 a blessing. But there are other things that we all lack, and it could be somewhere along those same things, whether it be health or, or, or a husband or a, an income or a mental ability, whatever it is, we have certain things and we lack other things, but no one has everything. And God has this amazing way in, in dealing with us that he gives us some things and he withholds other things, but nobody has everything. And, and what this kind of teaches us, the goodness of God teaches us in this, is that even the withholdings of God are a part of his goodness and his leading in our lives. Now, make no mistake about it, that it is God who is the one who's withholding the thing that each of these two ladies want. God owns this thing. It tells us back up in the, um, in the passage before us, that in verse 31 of chapter 29, that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Here we see Jacob clearly saying in verse 2, he says, am I in God's place who has withheld thee from the fruit of the womb? Jacob acknowledging that it is God that has done this. We see as we look over in verse uh, 20, where is it? 20 something. We'll get there in a little while. That God, oh yeah, it's verse 22, that God remembered Rachel and he hearkened unto her and the Lord opened her womb. And so God is very much owning the fact that he is the one that is withholding Rachel at this point in her life from bearing children. And it's the same thing as it goes with Leah and Jacob's affection. It will come later, but she doesn't have it now. Now, God owns the fact that he withholds. I read it in our opening this morning in Psalm 84. It's verse 11. Psalm chapter 84, verse 11, where God says that the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. God owns the withholdings in our life. But with those withholdings, understand that God says, if I'm withholding something from you, it's because that something wouldn't be good for you if you had it. God doesn't willingly afflict the children of men, it says in Habakkuk chapter 3. And therefore, when God withholds something from our lives, he's doing it in knowing what that thing would do if we had it. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Rachel, in her frustration, she cries out and she says, give me children or I die, right? I'm going to die if I don't have children. And she really believed that. That was the heart cry of what she wanted deep inside. 
But what she didn't know, and the truth of the matter, was that if she was speaking rightly, she would have said, give me children and I'll die. Because that's exactly what's going to happen when she gets the desire of her heart a little bit further down the road. She's going to give birth to one, and in naming of him, she will declare, God will give me one more, but in the giving of birth to the second, it will take her life. And isn't it an interesting thing that God could see and God knew something that she didn't about the thing that she wanted the most? She thought, if I don't get this thing, it's going to kill me. And God said, no, when you do get this thing, it's going to kill you. Therefore, in my goodness, I'm withholding for your good, for your sake. We cannot see what's coming down the pike or how the things that come into or affect our lives are going to play out in the long run. We just can't see into the future. But we have a God and a shepherd who can. And when he withholds, it's for our good. And he calls us to be content. The second truth that we see in just this opening two sec, you know, verses here, not only no one has everything, but that possessing doesn't produce contentment. Listen, here's a secret. Even if you obtain the thing that you want most, it will not in itself provide lasting contentment for you. Because another thing about the fallen human condition is that once we obtain the thing that we're greatly seeking after, we immediately set our eyes upon the next thing that we don't have. And discontentment is an evil disease. Can I get an amen on that? When we get into a mode of discontentment, it is almost impossible to break out of it even when we obtain the things that we're seeking in our discontentment. It's a pattern that doesn't come upon us just in one thing, but in the way that we live our lives constantly. And, and, and what it does is that it takes away our joy because it's impossible for us to enjoy and even see the things that we have right now because we're too busy focused on the things that we want. Let me ask you, what would you trade that you love in order to get what you want that you don't have? If you were to take the things that you love the most in this life and you had to give one of them up in order to have the thing that right now you want the most, which one would it be? You see, after you think about it that way, you start to go, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure. Now add to that the domino effect of what having that thing's going to do in your life that you don't know about yet. And all of a sudden you start to say, well, let me just think about this a little bit. Discontentment is the thief of joy. It takes your joy away because you can't enjoy what you have the solution to it is to be a thankful person. Because when you're a thankful person, you're always playing over in your mind the things that you do have, the good that God has done in your life, and that becomes the focus and the epicenter, and you begin to trust Him in both the things that you have and in the things that you don't have. And the Bible teaches that we're to be content. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, he said that I have learned in whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content. He said, I have learned how to be abased, and I have learned how to abound. And then he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's in the context of contentment. He was talking about learning to be content. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he says, be content with what things you have, with such things as you have. Whatever the circumstances are in your life right now, Learn to give thanks in those circumstances knowing that God is for you and that he is working all things together for your good. 
The Apostle Paul would say to Timothy, he would say that we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Therefore, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. To know that you know the Lord and that you have a shepherd that's overseeing your life and that knows what's best for you and is going to give what's best for you, to be content in that situation makes you the richest, most wealthy person on the planet. And the Apostle Even Jacob's wives, they teach us here that we're to be content even in God's withholdings. Give me children or I die. No, no, no. (laughs) Give you children and you'll die. Trust the Lord in it. Well, now the conflict between the two begins to intensify. Are you ready for some rapid drama? Verse 3. It says that she said, Rachel, Behold my maid Bilhah. Go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. Okay? I can't have kids, but I ain't getting, letting Leah get the best of me. So you take a third wife. You'll take my handmaid, my wedding gift, and you'll go to her, and she'll bear upon my knees, and she'll be our child. And so she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid to wife, and Jacob went in unto her. And Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son, and Rachel said, God has judged me. And has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan means judging. God has judged in my favor. And Bilhah, Rachel's maid, conceived again and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. Now I've got his affections and his children. I win, she says. Naphtali means wrestling. And when Leah saw that she had left bearing... She took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop comes, and she called his name Gad. Gad means a troop. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asher. So you have the dueling daughters that are using Jacob as their mutual crossbow and they're shooting babies at one another (laughs) and it says that reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and he found mandrakes in the field now the mandrakes in the hebrew language it speaks of what in those days was known as love apples which were a natural aphrodisiac something that grew native in that area and you'll understand why in just a moment And so Reuben, the oldest child of Leah, found mandrakes in the field, and she brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. And she said unto her, Is it a small matter that you have taken my husband, and would you now take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore, he shall lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes, okay? I'll sell you, Jacob, for the night if you give me some of these mandrakes. I'll get him in the long run then with these. Because when he eats them, he's going to want me and not you. This is nuts, isn't it? You're like, am I reading the Bible? Are these the people of God? And Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him. Oh, And said, you must come in unto me, for surely I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he laid with her that night. And God hearkened unto Leah, and she conceived and bare Jacob the fifth son. 
And Leah said, God has given me my hire because I have given my maiden to my husband. And she called his name Issachar. Issachar means hire, that he is hired. He was purchased. And Leah conceived again, and Jacob bare the sixth son. And Leah said, God has endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards, she bare a daughter, and she called her name uh, Dinah. And so this whole thing is going on between them. Jacob finds himself in a very, very short period of time um, with 10 children, 10 boys, and a girl, four wives, and he's looking at things, and he is saying, how in the world did this happen? How did I get here? There was a time um, when, when my, we only had three and they were little. They were all little. They were probably like four, two, and one or, or something like that. I don't know how old my kids are. I lost track of that a long time ago, you know. But we were camping, and that's kind of a weird, deadly combination. You know, camping, little kids, uh, just not good. Tent, ground, sleeping, you know. And I just remember being so exhausted, like exhausted to the point of death, it felt like, you know. And I was walking, and I was literally thinking to myself, like, how did I get here? You know, how did this happen? You know, I'm walking, and I've got these three little lives, and I think we had to take my son to the emergency room on that trip because, you know, we, we had to rip him out of the road, and he got this nursemaid's elbow. And, I mean, it was just insane, the a time of life for us as we're adjusting as new parents. Now it's easy. I'm like, three kids? Oh, I could do that all day, you know? But at that time, it was so difficult. And I, and I remember having the thought, we were walking at, the, at this campground, and I saw this newlywed couple. You could tell they were newlyweds by the look on their face. They were glowing. There was a glisten on their ring finger. You know, the, the ring was still shiny. And they were young, and they were just whatever. And, and, I, and I had the flashing thought for a minute that, God, you have called me to warn people not to have kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like, like, like I almost wanted to say, don't do it, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, I was good, and, 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 I, and you know, it is a blessing from the Lord, I, I thank God Hosanna's sitting here in the back, you know, I'm very grateful for you, I probably have some others in here somewhere, you know, it's like, where's Waldo at this point, you know, but, but it is, it can be hard, and here's Jacob now, and he's in this point where he's got 10 kids, and he's going, what in the world is going on here? Now, you say, how do you make sense of all this biblically? Because it sounds like God's fingerprints are all over this. God heard, God added, God did, this whole thing. God wants 12 tribes. And God's going to build 12 tribes of this man Jacob, and they will become the nation of Israel. But in no way does God condone, bless or allow polygamy in his word. What God does as a father is that he gives his command in his word, he authors his way, he sets forth an example, and then he gives men and women the ability to make choices of what they're going to do with their lives. So from the very beginning, God said it, Jesus affirmed it, that marriage is between one man and one woman for the duration of a lifespan. Now, yes, polygamy took place in the Old Testament, even amongst the people of God. But it always caused problems and headaches, and it was never the perfect will of God for a man to be in that position. God allowed it, but God also reported the consequences that would come. We have the ability to choose. 
I have in my house about 40-something plugs. I don't know what the builder of my house was thinking, but I think they were making it an IBM branch or something like that. There's like plugs everywhere in my house. And plugs are the perfect size for little kids to stick their finger in, and I am not that guy that has safety-first things plugged in. I can't afford that many safety-first things to go into all the plugs. And so I show my kids the plugs, and I say, don't put your fingers in there. If you do, you're going to regret it. And then I could even give them an example. <laughs> you know, you'll, it zap fries you the whole thing. But now they have the ability to choose. If they go and they stick their finger in it knowing what it does, because they can't resist, because, man, it just seems like way too fun to take something this size and not put it in that hole, then if the consequence comes of them being shocked, they can't turn and look at me and say, what in the world are you doing to me? That's not fair. It's, it's mean of you to do it. No, no, no. I told you, you know, and now you've disobeyed. And so you're feeling the consequences of it. I remember when I was in a science class, a particular uh, science teacher I had was quite entertaining in the way that he presented things. And he always had uh, interesting things that did interesting things, potions and substances and all this stuff. And he would say, this is a common ingredient in everyday yogurt. And someone in the class had to be smart and say, well, can you eat it? And he'd say, yep, once. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea was, yeah, you can eat it, but it's going to kill you. <laughs> and there are things that we can do, that we can make choices for our lives, contrary to what God has said. And we could do it, and we might even survive once. But nevertheless, God lays things out the way they're supposed to be. He never allows polygamy nor condones it. He just reports that it happened. Well, it says in verse 22 that God remembered Rachel. And God hearkened to her, and he opened her womb. And so finally, God does come through. He fulfills the desire of the heart in his timing and according to his will. And Rachel conceives. And it says that she bare a son, and she said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. And she said, the Lord will add to me another son. The name Joseph means adding. She's prophesying over her own life that she's going to have yet one more. And it came to pass that when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. So we shift gears now from the drama of Jacob's family, thankfully. And we move now into the progression of God's will and leading in Jacob's life to bring him back down into the region of Canaan, which would become Israel, where he is supposed to be dwelling. And so a desire begins to stir in Jacob's heart at this point in time. And so he goes to his boss, Laban, his father-in-law, and he says, it's time for me to provide for my house. I need to go. I can't stay here. It isn't the will of God for me to be here indefinitely. And so arrangements need to be made for me now to take my wives and my children and to move back into the region of the south. God is stirring in his heart. Now, the time frame in all of this is that he's probably about 14 years into uh, the time that he's been with Laban. Remember, he's contracted for seven and seven. He worked seven years for Leah. He has seven years he has to work for Rachel. So it's coming up on that time. Fourteen years has passed, and he says, I want to go. And so he says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go, for you know my service, which I have done to you. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in your eyes, tarry, stay. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And he said, appoint me your wages and I will give it. Now that's a good employee. If you ever want to leave a position or a job 
and you look at your boss and say, it's time for me to look onward, and he or she looks at you and says, please don't go. I know my business is nothing without you here, and I'll pay you whatever you want if you'll stay. You're doing all right. And so by, J- by Laban's own testimony, Jacob is doing well here in the way that he's serving with Laban. And so he said, Jacob replies now in verse 29, he said unto him, you know how I have served you. Number one, you know the way in which I've been with you, the way that I've conducted myself, my manner of work, my work ethic. And secondly, how your cattle were with me. You know how your property, your investment, your cash, you know how I have dealt with that which you have committed into my care. Thirdly, for it was little that you had before I came, and it is now increased into a multitude. That word increased means to break forth. In other words, there has been an exponential increase in what you now call your net worth because of the service that I have rendered to you. It was little that you had when I came, but there has been an exponential increase since the time that I've been here. And then finally... And the Lord has blessed you since my coming. And so he brings four things to the attention of Laban that would make up his uh, track record, his transcripts, if you would. And so he finishes it with asking the question, and now when shall I provide for my own house also? In other words, I've, I've done very much to enrich you, but I've got nothing to show for it for myself personally, and therefore something must happen for me. And so he said, Laban, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. I don't want any of your money. I don't want a portion or a share in the, in the goods that you have presently. If you will do this thing for me, then I will again feed and keep your flock. I'll stay. I'll work for you on one condition. Here's what it is. He said, I will pass through all your flock today removing from it all the speckled and spotted cattle and all the brown cattle among the sheep and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such will be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come when it shall come for my hire before your face. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, I would that it might be according to your word. And so here's the agreement that Jacob uh, asks for and that Laban then agrees to. Here's the contract. He says, We're going to divide and separate the sheep. And you can remove from amongst the sheep, the, the, the brown, the grizzled, the gray, the speckled, anything that has a, a marking on it, separate them from the white sheep. And he says, I want from this point going forward, every sheep that is brown, speckled, spotted, ring straked, that has some mark on it, I want that to be my wages. Now what he's asking for is the inferior in terms of quality and desire. Everybody wanted the white ones. Those were the ones that were considered pure. Those were the ones that were of value. And there was some sort of recessiveness, at least in perception, in those that were otherwise. And so Jacob says, I don't want anything that you've got now, but what I want is that all of the recessive, at least in perception, sheep, goats, lambs that are born from this point forward that are with me. Those will be my hire going forward. So you take some, give some to your sons, leave some with me, and I'll 
keep. It'll be my inheritance. Those that are born that are ring strake, speckled, and spotted. And Laban says, done. <laughs> and he says, I'm gonna, I've got an idea. I know how I'm going to control this thing. Because that's the kind of man that Laban was. And so Laban, it says in verse 35, removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked, spotted, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, and everyone that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and he gave them into the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. So here Laban goes, all right, you want the ring strike, spotted, speckled, brown sheep? All right, we can do this. So he goes and he separates everything that has any mark at all, and he gives them to his sons and to himself, and he separates them three days from Jacob. That's quite a distance. And he leaves Jacob nothing but pure white sheep. Now, what do you think pure white sheep are going to give birth to when they have offspring? Pure white sheep. Maybe occasionally there'll be a recessive you know, something, and you'll get a brown one, and, you know, oh, wow, Jacob, good for you, you got a dollar, you know, kind of a thing. But basically, Laban is trying to set Jacob up for failure here because he doesn't want Jacob to ever leave. And so he makes the conditions exceptionally hard for him. Now, Jacob is not one to be outdone. Certainly, he has the blessing in the hand of God in his life. And so watch what happens. And so Jacob took him rods or branches of green poplar, and of the hazel and chestnut tree, and he peeled white strakes in them. So he peels the bark and he gives them kind of a zebra effect. And he made the white appear that was in the branches. And he set the rods which he had peeled before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs. And when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. So in other words, the, the ewes, the lambs, they would go to the watering troughs, and that's where they would drink. And right in front of them, laid in front of the gutters, would be rows and rows of these poplar, birch, chestnut branches that were all peeled with all of these stripes, and they would be looking at these stripes and streaks while it is that they're drinking, and of course it would be then that the males, the rams and the goats, would come up behind and they would mate, with the sheep while they were there looking and drinking in the scene, if you can picture it. And so when they came to drink, it says that they would conceive when they came. And so the flocks, verse 39, as a result of this, conceived before the rods, and they brought forth cattle that were ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob did separate the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring-straked, and all the brown in the flock of Laban, and he put his own flocks by themselves, and he put them not in unto Laban's cattle. And it came to pass, whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods, these peeled rods, branches, before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble or weak, he did not put the rods in, and so, therefore, the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. So, in other words, Laban, I'm sorry, Jacob figured out, first of all, how to make the sheep bring forth ring strake, spotted, and speckled, even though the parents were white. And then, when they did give birth to white sheep, he would separate those and not put the rods in front of them, 
And when they were weaker, he wouldn't put the rods in front of them. And so the result of the thing, it says in verse 43, that the man increased exceedingly and he had much cattle and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. And so over the course of about six years, between the 14th year and all the way up to the 20th year, Jacob becomes exceptionally rich in, in, in all of this livestock and this enterprise and this thing that he's figured out. Now we're going to find out in the next chapter, just a few verses from now, that God is the one that gave Jacob a dream, letting him know what to do. I mean, because there, there's no sheep encyclopedia or Wikipedia article on how to make, you know, he couldn't just log on his smartphone and go, how to make brown and speckled and gray. You know, but we're going to find out God showed him in a dream this thing with the rods and the branches, and then God made it happen, and ultimately Jacob was prospered because of it. Now, I look at this thing and I go, oh my goodness, this is insane. You know, just all this going on and what, what sense do you make of it? And here's, here's the takeaway in terms of uh, how this might apply to you and I. The Bible tells us that we are God's sheep. David would say, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd that lays down my life for the sheep. And you have this constant relational illustration between God and man, wherein God calls himself the shepherd and he calls us his sheep. David would say, you are our shepherd and we are the sheep of your pasture. And over and over again, you have this illustration. Peter would call God the chief shepherd and we wait for him to appear. And God certainly tends to us in the same way that a shepherd tends to sheep. Now, what do we know about sheep? We know that we're, they're weak. We know that they're vulnerable. We know that they need to be protected. We know that if they don't have a shepherd, they're as good as a meal for the next wolf or lion or the next cliff that they'll wander off of or stampede off of because they're following the whole, the whole flock and the whole flock is walking off a cliff. And so sheep are extremely vulnerable creatures. But what we learn about sheep in this thing that God shows to Jacob concerning what they produce, and listen very carefully because it applies very importantly to us in this day, is that God knows that what a sheep produces is directly affected and influenced by what a sheep is looking at. That where a sheep's eyes are set, when productivity happens in a sheep's life will affect the outcome in some way. It will bear the marks of what the eyes are upon. Someone was asked one time what the most deep and, th deep and profound theological principle they have ever heard was. And it was an esteemed theologian who was asked the question. And he gave his answer. He said, this is the most deep, profound thing I've ever considered or heard. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he said, but wait, there's a second. And it's almost equally as profound. And he said, what is it? Say on. He said, it's be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful little eyes what you see. And it is absolutely a fact of the matter that the things that you and I allow into the eye gate of our life and the ear gate for that matter have a direct effect upon the outcome of what's produced in our lives. And we're to protect what goes in through our eyes. Jesus would say that the eye is the lamp of the body. And therefore, if your eye be single, then the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, Jesus said, then your entire body will be filled with darkness. And oh, how great is that darkness. 
It is so essential, saints, that you and I understand that as God's sheep, what we allow in through the gates that God has given to us will affect what we become and what we are and what we produce. It bears a, a direct outcome, direct effect. Well, verse 1, chapter 31. It says, And he heard, Jacob, the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob is taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's has he gotten all this glory. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. And so now there's a relational souring. As we cross into chapter 31, we go from the dynamics of Jacob's family and his situation to now, kind of now we see the leading of the Lord in bringing him out of Laban's company and into the land of Canaan. For the past six years, he's been enriched. He's provided in the way that he wanted. And now it's time for him to go and transition must come. Transition comes into our lives at various times and varying degrees, doesn't it? How does God lead and orchestrate those times when we need to be led in those times of transition. How do we know when we're in the will of God when it's time for a change to come, a career change, a change of location, a change of scene or setting or situation in our lives? How do we discern and sense the leading of the Lord? Well, The very first thing, now it's time for Him to make a move. We see that the circumstances lend themselves to this change. For Jacob, it's a souring of the relationships. He realizes, hey, my boss... He's gone from being favored, from being family, from being friend, to now he's a foe, he's an enemy, he's competition, he's looking at me with lasers in his eyes. The co-workers, the people that I've been around, his sons, the people that I've trained up, everybody's out to get me, and he realizes that the nest is being stirred. And oftentimes when the Lord is leading you and I in a particular direction to go differently than what we are, he'll allow the nest to be stirred in some way. He'll allow things to stir up and our position will become extremely uncomfortable. That's a beginning, but it's not everything. Sometimes God might be doing something else in stirring up an uncomfortable situation. He might be trying to challenge us or change us or something. So it's not enough in and of itself, but it's one thing. And we see it happening in Jacob. And so it says that the Lord now spoke unto Jacob and he said, Return unto the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. This is number two. If you want to know if the Lord is leading you in a particular way in your life, God will be faithful to speak it. God will cause you to hear his voice and he'll be clear in giving you direction as to where it is that you're supposed to go. One of the most comforting things I have ever heard in my entire life is that the shepherd is never dependent on the IQ of the sheep. Isn't that comforting to realize? That if God wants you to to know something, he's not leaving it up to you to figure out what it is. He knows how to get the message across to you concerning his will. And if you're anything like me, if God wants you to have a message early next year, he better start right now. Right? Because I'm thick. I'm, I am as sheep-like and sheepish as you can be. And so God begins to speak now into Jacob's life and say, listen, it's time, it's time, it's time. And he gives to him also this affirming promise that not only are you to go, but he promises that I will be with you. That's what I want. See, sometimes I want, okay, Lord, well, what's going to happen? How do I go about it? Where do I go from here? What happens when I get there? And, and I have this whole thing. I want it figured out. And God says, no, 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 I'm not going to give you any of that. I'm going to give you the word go, 
and I'm going to give you the promise that I'm going to be with you. The amazing thing is that you and I possess that promise every day of our lives. Because what did Jesus say? He said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That promise is affirmed twice in the New Testament. And so therefore, we can stand confident that though we don't know how or what is going to happen, we know that he's with us, and that's all that really matters in the end, isn't it? Now, he's going to forget that, just like we do, but he's told. And so now, number three, not only does he have a stirring of the nest and a word from the Lord, but now he seeks counsel and the approval and the unity of his family. Verse four, it says that Jacob sent and he called Rachel and Leah to the field unto his flock. And he said unto them, I see your father's countenance that it is not toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my power, I've served your father and your father has deceived me and changed my wages Ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. If he said thus that the speckled will be your wages, then all the cattle bear speckled. And if he said thus the ring straked will be your hire, then bear all the cattle ring straked. Thus God has taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. And it came to pass at the time that the cattle conceived that I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream and behold, the rams which leaped upon the cattle were ring streaked, speckled and grizzled. And the angel of God spoke unto me in a dream saying, Jacob, and I said, here am I. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see all the rams which leap upon the cattle are ring streaked, speckled and grizzled for I have seen all that Laban does unto thee. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you vowed a vow unto me, now arise, get thee out from this land and return to the land of thy kindred. Jacob, this is all of me. The sheep, the prosperity, the time that you've been here, the wives, the children. And it all goes back to that first moment when you anointed the pillar and I spoke to you and I said, I will bring you back into this land again. And now, Jacob, it's time. And he communicates this to his wives. And it says that Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? For he has sold us and has quite devoured also our money. For all the riches which God has taken from our father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God has said unto you, do. Now this is remarkably telling about the character and the person that Laban was. Remember in our last study when Jacob made the agreement with Laban for the, for the one wife, Rachel? He said, look, I got no dowry. I got nothing to give you. He says, but I'll serve you seven years for Rachel. That will be my dowry. The dowry was the bride price. It would be money that would be paid out and kept in store for the bride on the day that she would leave or the day that the father would die or if the husband abandoned. That was the dowry. It was to be given to the bride. Ultimately, it was for her. It was to be kept by the father. Well, Jacob served 14 years for two wives, so he paid the dowry twice. And what Rachel and Leah are exposing now as they speak these words to Jacob is that Laban sold them for Jacob's labor, which was okay, but then he spent the money on himself. He consumed it, and thus there was no dowry even to give to them. And they realize that what was important to Laban his whole life was not them. Everything about Laban or for Laban was always about Laban. Laban was Lab for Laban. It was all about him. And so they said, whatever God has shown, do it. 
And so Jacob rose up and he set his sons and his wives upon camels. And he carried away all his cattle and his goods which he had gotten and the cattle of his getting which he had gotten in Paddan Aram to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the images, the teraphim, the household gods that were her father's. Mark that because it's going to come back in the story. And Jacob stole away unawares to Laban the Syrian and that he told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had and he rose up and passed over the river and set his face toward Mount Gilead. And it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled. So three days he gets between him and Laban. And he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days journey and they overtook him in Mount Gilead. So Laban takes seven days chasing after Jacob, hot with anger. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said unto him, Take heed that you speak not to Jacob either good or bad. Then Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mount and Laban with his brethren pitched in Mount Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, so now the confrontation, what have you done that you have stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and did not tell me that I might have sent you away with mirth and with songs, with tabret and with harp and have not allowed me to kiss my sons and my daughters? You have now done foolishly in so doing. Can you hear all the false piety? It's like, please, Laban. I can see the two daughters rolling their eyes as they text one another. (laughs) And then Laban went on, verse 29. It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Take heed that you speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. So God warned Laban, you better not touch him. And now, though you would need be gone, because you sore longed after your father's house, Yet why have you stolen my gods? By the way, mark that in your Bible. If your gods can be stolen and you know it, you're serving the wrong gods. He's called twice in this passage Laban the Syrian. He doesn't even own a faith in the God of Israel. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, and this is honesty, a rare token of it in Jacob's life, because I was afraid. For I said, peradventure, you would take by force your daughters from me. With whomsoever you find your gods, let him not live. Before our brethren, discern you what is thine with me and take it. I've not taken anything from you. For Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Then went he out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture and sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent but found them not. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise up before you, for the custom of women is upon me. And I'm in my monthly cycle and I'm unclean. I I, I just can't stand right now. You'll have to excuse me. And that is not the last time. It's the first mention in the Bible of a woman using her monthly cycle as an excuse to not do something. It does not give you a biblical precedent, ladies. And he searched but found not the images. Now, Jacob snaps. He goes postal. He's got 20 years of pent-up rage that's about to come out and flow all over Laban. 
And Jacob was wroth and chode with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued after me? Whereas you have searched all my stuff, what have you found of all your household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and, and thy brethren, that they may judge between us both. This 20 years have I been with you. Thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams of thy flock have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts I brought not to you. I bore the loss of it. Of my hand you, you did require it, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was, in the day the drought consumed me, and in the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus have I been twenty years in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, six years for your cattle, and you have changed my wages ten times, and except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had been with me, surely you had sent me away now empty. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Slam, you know. And don't, sometimes don't you just want to do this? My problem, I want to do this all the time. My problem is I don't think of these words till like two hours after the interaction. And then I'm like, man, I would have been good, you know. But Jacob was on point. And he gives it to him and he lays out his case before him. And Laban answered. And he said unto Jacob, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these cattle are my cattle, and all that you see is mine. Now mark this in your Bible. This is the most important words in the entire chapter. And what can I do this day? Unto these my daughters and unto their children which they have borne. Now I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter. You can read it on your own because they're going to make an agreement together. They're going to draw a line on the map. Laban's going to agree to stay to the north. Jacob is going to agree to stay to the south. They're going to part ways peaceably. But before we close and as we close, I want you to consider the choices and the outcome and the words of Laban here in this passage. He has wasted his entire life and opportunity to raise up a family that would rally around him and love him and respect him. And he has wasted it completely upon himself for the entirety of their adult life. They've come to the age where they've realized what the priorities of their father actually were. They have given up on trying to obtain something from him in terms of the affection of a father they have given their allegiance to Jacob and Laban now comes to the day of reckoning where he asks the question out loud and what can I do this day? And the answer is nothing. You can do nothing because you wasted every opportunity you had for the entirety of their lives on yourself and now in the day when it matters, you can do nothing. And I ask you here tonight, Dad, I ask you here tonight, Mom, what are you doing this day so that when that day comes, you don't find yourself saying, I have wasted every opportunity I've had to sow into my kids' lives the things that they needed from me 
and now there's nothing I can do about it. This is our call. This is our heritage. This is our privilege. We've been given by God this amazing trust that we have these little lives. We've been given the truth of God's word. We've been given a vision and an understanding of the kingdom. We've been given wisdom and the ability by God to see into their lives and unfold what he's put in them, to speak into them, to build them up, invest, and give the best that we can. None of us will be perfect. So that on that day, they look at us and they don't say, you wasted everything that we had. You squandered every moment of your life on your household idols. Why did Rachel steal the, the, the idols of her father? Because it was a dig. She took the things that were his priority for all those years. He didn't save the dowry for us. He spent it on an iPhone and racquetballs and golf clubs and a Mercedes and his career and everything else. He spent it all on that. And she said, I'll just take his stuff. It was supposed to be. Let it be a challenge, Dad and Mom. Let it speak to us. The things that matter, the things that last. It's our kids. It's our family. It's our future. The worship team can come as we close. There's a greater day coming. Not the day when our kids grow up and they look at us realizing what we did or what we didn't do, what we gave or didn't give. And you know, Sometimes kids are unreasonable. They'll wake up. But there's a greater day coming when we're going to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's going to say, talk to me about what you did with your life. The talents, the time, the opportunities, the resources, the relationships. Talk to me. And my prayer for us, my prayer for me, my prayer for you, is that not one of us would stand before him at that time and say in our heart, what can I do this day to go back and undo or go back and redo the things that I missed, the opportunities. My question to you tonight as we close, what can you do this day? Being that it's this day, you can do a lot. God, would you give us an assessment of our lives? Would you help us to see what you've given? Would you help us to see in a moment of clarity the call, the privileges, the opportunities, the resources, the people, the sphere, the gifts. Would you help us, O oh God, where adjustments need to be made, where priorities need to be changed, where things need to be left by the wayside, where repentance perhaps, where an attitude of embracing things that we've been avoiding, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eternal eyes, that you would help us, Lord, that our lives wouldn't be wasted on the temporary, on the earthly. If there's anyone here tonight, Lord, that doesn't know you personally, Perhaps you've awakened. Perhaps you've quickened something in their heart. They've realized something of an eternal God who loves. I 
pray that you'd win them to the persuasion that Jesus is worthy, that they might give their life to you. And for the Christian that's here, oh God, under the weight of your loving, gentle conviction, Lord, even for myself, I pray that you'd help us to lay down our lives, our stuff, to live completely for you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your kindness.